Hey everybody, Michael Gunger here. Hello, Emily Capshaw here. We're so excited to tell you about two new events that we're launching this fall. The first is called Commune. Commune is a two-night intensive that we'll be bringing to a bunch of different cities where anybody from any background, any place in your faith experience or your beliefs, you're all welcome to come experience community that's not based in a common fundamentalist belief, but instead is a radically inclusive universal space for community. So there will be sessions and teachings and song and dance and opportunities to connect with each other in person and be seen and heard and leave on a love high. Yeah, commune is great for like deconstructing Christians and people who want to find community together that are not interested in strict dogma or fundamentalism or anything like that. And then for those of you who want to go deeper, who want to engage in some spiritual practice together that's a little more intense and maybe a little wilder, (laughs) uh, exploring unitive consciousness with each other, the one retreat may be the perfect fit for you. In fact, you could do both. We're actually going to do the commune events in these cities followed immediately by the one retreat. So it would be possible for you to do both or either. We're bringing these events to Nashville and to Chicago and to Atlanta and to the LA area with more events to be added soon. Go to theliturgists.com and you can see some videos about these events, read a little bit more about them and grab some tickets if you'd like. We'd love to see you. Welcome to the Liturgist Podcast, everybody. My name is Michael Gunger. This episode is the second part of a two-part series on Reformation. In the first episode, we talked about why Christian Reformation is needed in the world. To quickly recap those four major arguments we laid out. Number one, we're all swimming in Christianity, whether we consider ourselves to be Christian or not. So we might as well clean up the water as best as we can. Number two, Christianity has some really valuable and effective tools and practices for a fuller experience of your life in this body here and now. Number three, a lot of trauma is created in the world when people feel like they need to leave their tradition in order to keep growing. Number four, the amount of mythical groundwork laid by our ancestors is not really possible to replicate at this point in history, so we might as well do the best with what we have. In this second episode of this two-part series, we are addressing the specifics of what this will look like moving forward, the what and the how. You know, what is it exactly that needs to be reformed? How do we go about engaging in reframing or reforming current language and traditions, practices? How do we avoid the pitfalls that have made so much of Christendom so toxic up to this point? And what role can we play in this together at The Liturgists? To begin addressing these questions, I'd like to take it just a second and talk about the format of the show moving forward, because with this new endeavor that we're embarking on together, we're going to be playing around a bit with the format. Rather than being a host-driven conversational format for all the shows, we're, we're going to be also including more produced segments in order to clearly lay out some of the ideas and as well as inviting you, the listener, to a more experiential engagement with the show. So we'll be playing around with different segments. There'll be meditations and poetry and historical segments. And all these segments will be coming from 
a bunch of us in the community. Some voices you've heard from before, some are new, but you're going to start hearing this term sometimes called the symposium. And it's this little group of people that has formed and is uh, forming still, but it's sort of a creative group at the heart of this thing that is coming up with ideas and having discussions around this whole Reformation idea. Uh, and in fact, I'd love to introduce you to one of them now. Emily Capshaw is a non-dual writer and creative artist with a big heart for people and relieving their suffering. You've heard her on the show before, possibly as a guest, or maybe on the Alien podcast. She's been on there a couple of times. And I'm personally super excited that she's going to be taking a more forward producer role in season seven. Hi, Emily. Hey, Michael. Hey, liturgists. Okay, so let's dive in a bit deeper to this, you know, saving Christianity from itself business. Emily, tell us about what you've been learning about. In order to understand where to even begin with healing the brokenness in Christianity, it's important to take a look at the history of the church. When in the past have reformations been attempted? What worked? What failed? As I started to research these questions, I quickly realized that the entire Christian religion has essentially always been up for debate. I actually couldn't find a point in history where there wasn't major splits and dissension. Take the Bible itself, which is widely considered to be the central authority of Christianity. The books of the canon were chosen over the course of hundreds of years. They were changed often, and still today, a Protestant Bible has 66 books, where a Catholic Bible has 73, and the Ethiopian Orthodox Bible has 81. The formation years of the Christian faith post-Jesus' death were filled with debates over what it meant to be a Christian. Many of the hearings and councils that decided every major pillar of Christianity were conducted privately and were controlled by government power and were far from a fair representation of the will of the people. Every major decision around scripture and what was heresy and what wasn't was tied up with political agenda. You cannot separate the formation of the church from the pursuit of power and the intention to unify people against a common enemy. Diving into Christian history feels like a bottomless pit full of questionable sources, a lot of boring theological debates, and a lot of uncertainty. So, let's get a brief overview of the most defining moments of Christian history from one of our symposium members. She is a minister, a history aficionado, and a fierce advocate for the well-being of all people, Reverend Brianna Lynn. Hello! <laughs> Let's start with the early church right after Jesus' death. One of the key moments was really the decision of, of Paul and ultimately Peter to leave Jerusalem, to leave their hometown and to go out into the world. I think that's kind of our first Reformation. Although Yeshua, um, which translates to Joshua, for those of you who don't know, Jesus is actually a mispronunciation from Constantine the Great. Um, it was an inappropriate mispronunciation, a cultural appropriation, mis mispronunciation of Yeshua, which is the Aramaic word, which translates directly to Joshua. So his name was Josh. Um, so when they decided to take Josh's words and go out into the world, there was a reformation in that moment. There was distinct translations of the energetic of what that meant to go spread the word. Although that was something that the Christ, one of the Christ, Josh the Christ spoke about, 
there was a lot of interpretations amongst that amongst the apostles, and they argued amongst themselves all the time. <laughs> and so I think to go into the basis, if we're going to just go scripture, like Luther style, we're just going to read the scripture for scripture's sake, to go back to the scriptures and to acknowledge, even in our very diluted New King James versions, we see the argument being had from the beginning. So in the beginning was Reformation. (laughs) (laughs) So to really embody this conversation as a continuation of what has always been the basis of following a Christ, following a teacher, following someone who declared that the word of God is unconditional love, from the beginning that was contested, from the beginning that was questioned, from the beginning it was asked, okay, well, how do we practice and how do women practice and how do men practice and these different layers immediately. Fast forward to 313 AD. Constantine the Great was raised in a couple of different kind of Christian sects. We saw more sects at that time. And his mother was deeply imbued in in a very earth-based Christian sect that was very much still steeped in paganism and and ritual. And it was a little bit more of a synchronization between uh, what was rising to be this this Christian philosophy, which was around unconditional love and a single God, a monotheistic God, and still very much play, praying and playing with the earth deities. So that's what Constantine the Great was, was imbued with. And then he saw how powerful it was as an emperor who ruled the second largest army in the world. The first largest was the Ottoman Empire, which was just his neighbors to the east um, and also his main enemy. And so he needed a format if you will. He needed a propaganda campaign to unify the very diverse range (laughs) of peoples from, if you think, from the Hebrides of northern Scotland into North Africa, Alexandria, Egypt, right? Different cultures, different climates, different histories, different ways of being, different clays, different food. How do we unite an empire that is so distinct and they're supposed to come together at this front in, at the time, Constantinople, which was the front between the Roman Empire and the Ottoman Empire, how do we get these people from these diverse backgrounds to come together and actually do something together? Fuck. Like he was in a, between a rock and a hard place, like a really challenging thing. And he had a couple of, we'll just say bugs in his ear, different bishops from around the Roman Empire that were saying we need, we need to unify under one God. We need to unify under one name. And Constantine was a bit hesitant at first that he wanted to honor the pagan religions. He wanted to honor, just to say what they are, these are deep, traditional, earth-based traditions that work with the elements, that work with plants as medicine, that work with animism, that work with deep mythologies. These were not what is often whitewashed and branded to be savage, horrible, baby-eating traditions. These are thousands and thousands and thousands of years old ways of respecting the earth. And he understood that to take that culture from people would strip them even deeper of their identity. They're already a part of the Roman Empire. There were already, you know, micro-civil wars happening in multiple places, so he didn't want to inflame that. But he did anyway, because remember, this is about power. Cue the Council of Nicaea. Around 330, the exact date is contested, but it was said to have gone on for years, the Council of Nicaea, that gathered and, and wanted to go over a few main points. One, what are the scriptures? What are the books that we actually want to pay attention to? Number two, what's the order of hierarchy and patriarchy that we are going to adhere to? And number three, what's the main focus, specifically what we now know as the Trinity? What's the main focus that we're going to keep? What's the brand? 
right? The cross and the Trinity is what was born from the Council of Nicaea. And it's really important to note that before that time, the Trinity and the cross were not symbols of Christianity at all. But that was, I see the Council of Nicaea as kind of the first main reformation, or if you will, like a, a cohesion of that time. There were lots of different little out, outposts from the Council of Nicaea around the 330s. You see kind of the rise of, of this different practice in Gaul, which is modern day Spain, a very different practice rise in, in northern Scotland and integration of, of more of the Celtic wisdoms. And you see a very different type of Christianity rise in Alexandria. So you see these different sects start to rise. And the the job of the Roman Empire, now that it had this cohesive church, was basically to create a Bible, create um, a heartbeat that then could pulse out throughout the Roman Empire. And they weren't very good at it, right? Like they really tried, but they weren't very good at it. But when the, the breakdown of the Roman Empire started to happen and we saw the rise of these different kingdoms and queendoms and specifically the creation of, of England um, and the creation of Spain, we saw different kings take on the culture of the specific type of Catholicism or Christianity that was happening at those times. There were also, of course, sects of Christianity that spread through Southern and Eastern Europe and into Asia and places like Russia and even further east. And as you can imagine, the sects didn't tend to agree with each other about much. The first seven centuries of Christianity, which today many people refer to as the early church, had at least seven major ecumenical councils. And every time some branch or sect would split off from the others. What is called the Church of the East split off after the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. The Oriental Orthodox Churches split off after the Council of Chalcedon 20 years later. And then a huge split called the Great Schism happened in 1054 AD, when the Roman Catholic Church split off from the Orthodox Catholic Church, also called the Eastern Orthodox Church. So let's jump back to Rome in the 1500s. Where we started to see the split of the Roman Catholic Church from what is modern-day Christianity is in the early 1500s. And the most famous one, obviously, is Martin Luther. Um, he was arrested many times. But his main point was that the way the Catholic Church was behaving financially and the way that it was creating edicts for humans in their day-to-day -day life outside of Scripture was bullshit. He was just like, you guys can't make up stuff that's not in the Bible. Like, that's not fair. Because that basically means at any moment that you feel the whim that you don't like this person, all of a sudden you can kill them. And I'm over it. His aunt was convicted of witchcraft and she was tortured and killed. Like, he has some, you know, he has some personal ties to that. And then the next rise that we see is Henry VIII. He was married to a woman named Catherine of Aragon, super sweet Spanish princess. He was over it. He fell in love with Anne Boleyn and her sister. I mean, we can go into that one for days. And he was like, look, Catholic Church, you need to give me the divorce. And they said, no, Henry VIII, you're fucking out of line. He said, well, then I'm going to kill this princess and I'm going to make my own church. So that's when we see the Anglican Church or the Church of England start to rise. Which brings us to the early 1600s. So as we see different sects of Christianity, if you will, start to mature and grow. One of the main sects that we see is the Protestants and the Protestants in England. And there was the Church of England or the Anglican Church and then the Protestants who were there. And the Protestants were basically those who believed different protesting groups around Europe facing off with the Catholic Church and then also facing off with the King of England. So King James was the one who first wrote the or established, I don't know, definitely not wrote, but like recompiled 
the Bible, and many of us use the King James or the New King James version of the book today. When that happened, there was a huge uprise from people of just like, what the fuck is this? Like, how, how dare you say that you have the right to recompile the Bible? Even though it's funny because that's the Bible that most Christians use today, the Protestants had this little seed kind of popped into them in the early 1600s, and a huge wave of them came over to what is now known as the New World. So the pilgrims were like, we're peacing out, we're going to the New World, and the Protestants were very fundamental, very conservative in their practices, very ritualistic, very what would seem by like some standards today, like almost um, paranoid. That if they didn't do the prayers in a certain way, if they didn't, that God would smite them. And this is, you know, coming off of decades, if not generations of plague, um, generations of lots of religious warfare. So to come to a quote unquote new land, again, obviously not new because there were thousands of tribes of indigenous people here, but to come from a European perspective to new land that didn't have an overarching structure that could then enforce religious philosophies and beliefs was like a whole new world of like, we can express ourselves. But instead of going out with it, they almost imploded and became more structuralized, became extremely wound up in their need to protect their religion. However, all of our founding fathers, again, entre comillas, in air quotes, founding fathers, um, were very religious one way or another. And although there is the separation of church and state because they didn't want the president to be the pope, they input God into the very basis of our constitution, literally. It's on every dollar bill. It's grown into the culture of our judicial system. Uh, Being a punitive system comes directly from this very tight-fisted Protestant Christian pilgrim base for what is what we know to be the American justice system, the American education system, even the American pharmaceutical system, I would say, is deeply based in this... um, American Protestant revolting against the Church of England, revolting against the Catholic Church, but in that revolt, holding so stringently to their beliefs and practices that they ended up killing a lot of their own and our own witch trials here in the United States and our own heresy trials here. So I think to say that there's ever been a church, a separation of church and state in the United States is completely a fallacy. The The state was established by the church. That's just the bottom line is the people who came here felt a religious right to this land. They felt a religious right to overthrow, not even overthrow, run out, destroy, genocide the indigenous people that were here because, quote unquote, God had given them this land. And that white man's burden of needing to spread the word of God in combination with believing that they were somehow given some edict from God to be able to destroy other people has been the American way and is still to this day is still to this day. And from our military exploits from around the world to the way that our Congress people and presidential candidates are allowed to speak to each other, there is a real threat of domination. I think one thing that we can look at in the Church of England, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church is this constant need for hierarchy and domination. So the real reformation I feel within the Christian church is where we stand today as either former Christians, current Christians, or those who just really want to follow what it means to be unconditionally loving is to question the domination tactics, hierarchy, and structures that have been put in place, not by Jesus Christ, not by Josh, but by those who wanted to use that message to usurp it for their own military and economic conquests. 
So Reformation itself is built into the DNA of the Christian faith from its origin. But how do we break out of the loop of arguing over beliefs and traditions and who is in and who is out? It seems that all that has caused further splits and separation within the religion itself, a religion that was formed to unify an empire, but sort of through separation still as it was unifying against a common enemy. Even Martin Luther intended to change the church as a whole, but instead he created another split. It seems what is really needed is a way to mend those splits, to bring total union without a common enemy or other. But how? I think one of the greatest examples that we could learn from is the Buddhist tradition, uh, because Buddhism has both been used as a tool of war and as a tool of peace. And so there have been Buddhist teachers who've gone out and inspired militaries, inspired genocide through the Buddhist teachings. And utilizing those same teachings, there has also been great inspiration of unity and inner and world peace. And so understanding that it's not so much the tool, it's not so much the scriptures or even the history of Christianity that is good or bad or useful. It's more of how do we as human beings want to wield this tool in its basis, in its core, what I know and what I've experienced of true Christianity is the heart of unconditional love, like the Christ consciousness that I knew in my heart as a four-year-old little girl singing like, praise be to the Lord in the hallways and in the aisles of my church, like just with my heart burst wide open, like feeling the love of God, goddess I am, like feeling that unconditional love is the activation that the, that the Christian church could offer people and understanding that our greatest tool is unconditional love and unconditional non-judgment. That when we come to that place of unconditional non-judgment, then we can offer space for people to be witnessed. Now, this doesn't mean we, we, we condone behavior that hurts others. It doesn't mean that we say that we believe that what other people believe. It doesn't mean that we congratulate people when they harm themselves or others. It means that we stand in a place knowing that we don't know shit like that to me, the, the basis of Christianity, Christianity in its truest form would be an advocate for restorative justice, 100%. Restoring the wholeness of each individual, restoring the Christ within each one of us, remembering that Yeshua was our example and he himself said, you will do 10 times, 10 times, 10 times, 10 times, thousands more better things than I did. Your work is to go spread the word that all beings are one being and that heaven on earth is accessible now. That's the good news. It's accessible now. It's not some next life version of ourself that in this moment we can access it through remembering that God lives under the rock in the tree in our hearts. That's what he said after he fasted for 40 days. Satan came to him and was like, I'll give you everything. And Jesus was like, you're funny. God is in the tree. God is in the rock. God is in my heart. You can't give me or take anything away from me that is my promise as a child of God. And that is the good news that we get to spread. So once Christianity aligns with what Christianity actually is, was, and forever will be, then we'll see a huge reformation without even having to try. Unconditional love, non-judgment, restorative justice, faith that doesn't depend on belief. Ah, oh, it's all beautiful, right? But does it actually square with Christianity? Like, is there room for non-judgment in a story about 
the creator of the universe, fundamentally being a judge who decides who's good, who's not, who's in, who's out. Wouldn't expecting unconditional love and non-judgment to come out of Christianity be sort of like expecting good health advice from big tobacco? I mean, we can't expect an apple tree to produce oranges. And Christianity as it is, well, it tends to produce a whole lot of conditional love and judgmentalism and punitive justice and faith that is equated with intellectual belief. And if we're using that tree metaphor, what exactly is it in the tree that keeps producing such shitty fruit? Because like Emily and Brianna were talking about, the idea that Christianity needs to be reformed is certainly not a new idea. Most have seen problems with Christendom. That's even true institutionally. I mean, that's why there's so many sects and denominations. We're all trying to figure out what the hell is wrong with this thing. It keeps churning out things like bigotry and shame and supremacy culture. But what tends to happen is that we'll find the most aggravating piece of fruit on the tree and try to fix it. This particular doctrine or practice or result, we think we know the problem. The problem is this particular thing. I need a, we need a bigger focus on worship. Somebody else is like, no, it's not worship we need to focus on. It's the poor and the oppressed. And maybe we find a group that we've been oppressing. Maybe at first it's women. We haven't been letting women be in ministry. And we're like, that needs to be reformed. And we go through all the work and the pain of doing that, getting that right. Finally, women are in ministry. Oh, finally, we fixed the problem, right? And then the lesbian volunteers for the nursery. And the church splits again. Because, oh, we had more work to do here. And there's reform that's done and we work and work and oh, there's all the pain. And okay, finally, oh, we've accomplished it. We're LGBTQ friendly and affirming. And then somebody's polyamorous and we're like, oh, there's more. <laughs> it just goes on and on. We keep finding more layers of the oppression, of the judgment. No matter what we fix on the surface, we keep finding more of it underneath more judgment, more ways to be in and out, more conditional love and beliefism. And it's like what we're doing is moving from branch to branch, just sort of polishing different rotten pieces of fruit. And the roots under all of this bad fruit remain as they are. And I'd like to make a case to you that there is something fundamental at the roots of Christianity that needs reforming if we hope to have any significant change in the fruit of this tree over time. And it's not any single doctrine, practice, or pet issue. In a way, it's, it's actually the nature of Christianity itself. It's how we see the thing itself. What we need is a shift so fundamental that the very nature of Christianity itself what it is, what it's for, how to engage with it, is seen from a completely different vantage point. And before I get into what I think that lens click could look like, I want to play some recordings for you that some of you sent in a couple months ago. And you responded to a question about what wasn't working for you about Christianity and what was working for you. 
And as you listen to these, see if there's any common threads that you can start to pick up on. What has worked for me in Christianity is cultivating a relationship with the divine and appreciating the spirituality of the world around me. What has not worked for me is the dogmatism, the rigidity of church cultures. I've had moments in adoration um, on retreat when praying with other people where I find God and it affirms that this is something worth pursuing. On the other hand, something that makes me question Christianity and gives me issues with it is the idea of humans, quote, knowing what is true when it comes to God and the church. What's worked for me is the language, tradition, and values Christianity has given me to connect with others and with all of creation. What hasn't worked for me is the rhetoric, the institutions, and control mechanisms used to cause division among them. What hasn't worked for me in Christianity is calling something faith and then believing that you actually already have all of the right answers. For me, Christianity worked best when it was more about a shared sense of community. What has worked for me about Christianity and what continues to feel only more and more true and deeper the further I get from Christianity is that life can come out of death. Not just in my life and in history, but like the core of the universe. The narrative thread of redemption works for me. The concept of love being for all people. Going out and showing love to people no matter what, but also having the tools to cater to people's individual needs. Where Jesus says, come on to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's something that has brought about healing and joy in my life. What's worked for me in Christianity is the unchanging nature and love of God. Seeing the beauty in everything. What doesn't work for me is all of the rules, the new sort of Christian law. Fear. Fear of everything. Fear of the end times. Fear of not being in God's perfect will. Fear of people who didn't believe like me going to hell. Fear of not pleasing God. Um, and it's been crushing. They take the Bible and use it as a means of persecution and and judgment. We have to be a certain way. We have to perform a certain way in order to be acceptable. Christianity as a practice of following the teachings of Jesus and aligning with Christ consciousness and emulating that energy is beautiful and works wonders for me. Christianity as a belief system that upholds the insane idea that your forgiveness hinges upon what you believe is antichrist and does not work for me. Thank you so much to everybody who responded to that question. If we look at everything that people say hasn't worked for them about Christianity, there's a common thread to be found, and that is one of disintegration or fragmentation. Think about it for a second. Let's take a handful of some of the things you in the community have told us haven't worked for you about Christianity. Let's start with shame. That's a big one. 
Why is shame a bad experience for us? I mean, if you really look into the experience of, of shame, it's sensation, right? But there's something about shame that we don't like. There's something that doesn't work for us because it alienates us from ourselves, from others. When you feel ashamed, there's like a divide that happens within you. There's the judge and the judged. Somehow the one me is turned into two, and I'm judging myself to be unworthy. Shame can also divide you from others. It can make you feel alone and unprotected, like you don't belong because you're not good enough, not lovable enough. It can also create a sense of alienation from your source. It's a fragmenting. It's a disintegration of wholeness. Okay, let's look at something else. How about bigotry? It's a very common thread through Christianity. What's wrong with bigotry? I mean, it's inherently a judgment, right? It divides us from them, tears us apart, creates a hierarchy between us. How about the doctrine of hell? That's something that's bothered a lot of us. And why has it bothered us? Because hell is inherently a doctrine that divides reality into those who are lovable and forgivable by God and those who aren't. It divides the whole in two. It disintegrates the wholeness. And if we go through all the things that you don't like about Christianity, that don't work for us, you can find some sort of aspect of dividing and rejecting part of the whole. These people are in, those are out. These sorts of thoughts are in, those are out. This part of my human experience is in, these other parts are out. This is what dualism is. Dualism divides the one into two. All these destructive ways of practicing Christianity are ways of dividing up reality, creating some sort of hierarchy of good and evil, pulling us apart from ourselves, our neighbors, our environment, our source. If we look at the other side, though, of the equation, if we look at the common thread for the things that have worked, that do work for us about Christianity, we find the opposite. We find integration. We find wholeness. We find what was divided into two being brought back to one. Let's look at some specifics to see how that works. Think about unconditional love. What is that other than accepting what was unacceptable, what was divided and rejected back into the whole? Think about forgiveness. What was broken and torn apart is brought together again. It's reconciled. It's healed, it's forgiven, it's remembered. The Eucharist remembers Christ. The things that don't work for us are the things that tear us apart. The things that do work for us are the things that mend us back together. Like Josh said, may they be one as you and I are one. So here's the issue. If Christianity is a belief system, it's going to be inherently dualistic. It's going to be inherently divisive. It's going to say, this is true and not this. That's the nature of belief. The nature of belief is it's an abstraction in the mind that we use to divide the world. Because when I believe something, I'm going, this is how the world is, like this in my mind, not that other way. It's inherently dualistic. We believe and the world divides. You, me, us, them, creator, creation, sacred, secular, good, evil. To have a belief 
is to create a model of reality in your head. And then assuming that that model is something other than a model in your head. You know, when we say we believe in one God, the father creator of heaven and earth, that's a way kind of a forgetting that we're making up these words. We're saying we believe. And so when we believe we've already divided ourselves from this God that we say we believe in. We've already assumed God to be a separate something or someone to believe in. When Christianity is a belief system that we use to form identities with, we are dividing ourselves from those who don't have the same mental constructs as we do. We're dividing ourselves from the wholeness of this moment. We're standing above it. And our beliefs are the ways that we try to control it. Right? That's what, I mean, when we believe, we're believing so that, fill in the blank, we believe so that we can have eternal life or so that we can change the world. Belief is inherently a means to an end other than this moment. It's an attempt to get to some other moment, some other reality, because we're not at home in this one. But the truth is that this moment is the only real thing. Can you find something that's not in this moment? Even your memories, your projections of the future, it's all just happening in this moment. This moment's the only thing that's actually happening. But we use these powerful tools of our mind. We use our memory and our projection and beliefs to create some other moment in our minds. And belief becomes a tool that we can use to start trying to craft some other moment when we finally get to the kingdom of God. But Yeshua taught that the kingdom of God is already here. It's already within you. There's nothing to believe about it. Just open your eyes. Look. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Feel your feet. Your breath. Look at the colors around you. The texture of the world. You're here, you're in heaven already. Stop trying to make it into a hell with all of your beliefs. This may sound confusing to you, because it's really kind of opposite of the way that Christianity has so often been preached in the world. We've taken the living body of Christ, nailed him to a cross, and put the cross up on church walls to make sure he stays dead. If anything exists, it only exists in and as this moment. And we, when we make Christ, when we make Christianity an abstract set of beliefs in the things from the past in order to affect some imaginary future, then Christianity in that way is just idolatry. It's a sham. None of those things exist from the past or in the future. It's just in our mind. Only this moment exists. 
How are you experiencing this moment? For Christianity to actually be a useful tool spiritually, it must inform that which is real, our actual lives, which are happening in this moment. Not simply some imaginary other world. In other words, it must be a way of experiencing forgiveness, remembrance, integration, restoration, healing, love. The two coming back to one. May they be one as you and I are one. And that only happens now. Here's our plan for this season of the podcast, which is just the beginning, by the way. This season, we're going to start looking at this tree that we're all inhabiting called Christendom. But we're going to be looking from a non-dual lens. And in the spirit of our ancestors, we are going to feel free to cut away what needs to be cut away, to reframe what needs to be reframed, to reclaim that which has been forgotten to join with people around the world who are already actively doing this work. We want to highlight the thoughts and voices and practices of people who haven't typically been in the center of religious power in the world. We want to hear from liberation theology. We want to hear from black and queer and transgender and Latinx voices, indigenous voices. We want to hear from a broad range and diverse set of cultures and practices and see what's out there. See what's been happening outside of the typical power structures of Christendom. Because we know we are not the first or the last to be doing Reformation work. Still, we feel like we do have some specific things that we as a community and as an organization can lend our strength, our influence, and our skills towards. One of those things being a statement, a clear statement that we could draft together through this season to sort of clearly lay out some of the things that we're hearing and learning that could be reformed. And not taking ourselves too seriously in any of this, but in a lighthearted allusion to Martin Luther and his theses, uh, we'd like to post that statement to the doors of the internet. Because, you know, I mean, that sounds silly and fun. Why not? We're going to take on the hats of reformers with full authority to take and leave what is useful or not. We are going to curate and create powerful spiritual practices and technologies and work towards reforming and reframing the very nature of what we think of as Christianity. And by the way, this is not, again, this is not an endeavor for just Christians. We are not trying to start a new religion. We are not trying to create a new identity or a new belief system. We are endeavoring to look at the waters that we're swimming in to make use of the pearls that are available to us. And that might be through biblical language, but it could be through anything in Christendom, which, by the way, would include secular humanism, which would include atheism. Those are all part of this stream, which would include paganism, would include the left-handed spiritual paths that have been among us in the West, but not mainstream. 
We want to look at all of it. We want to look and say, what's of use at this point for our lives? This is the work of those who have gone before us and those who will come after us. And it's our work too. It's the work of the people, the work of reformation. think emily no big deal just a little, little, little. <laughs> just some light-hearted content this season <laughs> just a just a, a simple task at hand just real, real quick reform two thousand years of christendom just so it's not so shitty yeah a couple months a couple months at most well this is obviously a ridiculous and i think delightfully outrageous task to set our course towards one thing i love about this idea is that even if it's a total failure in that nobody else finds it interesting or the show falls apart, everyone thinks we're insane. I wouldn't necessarily count that as a failure completely. First of all, this is going to be fun as hell. <laughs> and that's enough. And also, even if now is not the time for a non-dual Christian path to be organized and established in the world, who knows? Maybe somebody 200 years from now, some graduate student will be researching and find some obscure podcast you know from these weirdos who tried to do what she's been dreaming of i guess what i'm getting at is that we're part of a bigger conversation here that's been going on for a long time and will continue to go on for a long time and why not speak passionately and audaciously you know Okay, before we go, Emily, do you want to tell everybody about the Sunday thing? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely one important thing to to know about this season is that it's going to be super collaborative and and we want it to be a group thing and and hear everyone's ideas. And so we've already started the past couple Sunday things talking about the episode that we're working on that week and, and sharing the idea to hear from you guys what your thoughts are on it and we kind of workshop it in a group way which has been super fun to hear everybody's thoughts and perspectives because so many of you guys are so insightful and and so experienced in in these ideas and so that's been really fun to do so we definitely invite everyone to join us on the sunday thing if you want to be a part of this conversation and that's at 11 a.m pacific standard time on sundays you can be a part of that by just being part of the community and that's really how we invite your participation right now in what we're doing. Just join the community. And for those of you that are having financial difficulties right now, which is a lot of you, we will let you in for free. <laughs> we don't want anybody to have any uh, financial obstacle to being part of this work at all. So if you can join and be a patron and, and support us uh, with a monthly donation, that's super helpful. You could use that right now. But... Even if you can't do that, we want you around. Um, so you can go to the website, theliturgists.com, and join the community for free. And as always, you are welcome to this table, regardless of your gender, your orientation, your race, your beliefs, or anything else that we might distinguish about your beautiful incarnation. We welcome all of you. Let's have fun. Thank you.